you want to grab your Bibles and open to the book of John. John chapter 17. We'll read one verse, then we'll pray a song, and we will jump to the message this evening. John chapter number 17 and verse number 23. John chapter 17. The Gospel of John. Chapter 17, verse number 23. The Bible says, verse number 23, John 17, 23. I in them, Jesus Christ is speaking here. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Let's pray, dear Father. I thank for this opportunity to preach. Father, I do not take it lightly. I pray that you'll use me, Father. I pray that you'll enter me myself and fill me with your spirit. I pray that you'll give me the words to say. I pray that you'll allow me not just to fill a time, Father, but to be used of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for receiving. can just see them walking on the shores of heaven. They're praising the Lord and watching the tide roll in. Friends that have gone on, oh, how I miss you so. Somehow I know that if you could, that you'd let me know that you're doing fine. It doesn't hurt anymore. That heaven is and heaven is worth waiting for. That you miss me too, until then, you'll be praying for me. And I know that if you could, here's what you'd say to me. Wish you were here, it's such a beautiful place. you were here, nothing but clear sunny days. It never rains, no one complains, and we haven't seen a tear. We're having a great time, and we wish you were here. can just see them walking on the shores together. They're t- 
talking with Jesus, safe and secure in his love. Friends and loved ones walking in heavenly peace. And I know if they could talk to me now, Here's what they'd say to me. Wish you were here. It's such a beautiful place. Wish you were here. Nothing but clear sunny days. It never rains. No complains and we haven't seen a tear we're having a great time and we wish you were here it never rains no one complains and we haven't seen a tear we're having a great time, and we wish you were Instead of getting rid of all the filth immediately, he let it stick around a little bit, 
and it began creeping back into his life. The way he described it the first year of his infant spiritual life was uh, not a resounding success by any means. Oh, he would go to church on Sundays, but that was about it. Every night of the week, you could find him in the pool hall. If you know anything about uh, American history and things like that, you know the pool hall was not a place of uh, good things. It was a wicked place. It was where wicked men and wicked people went to spend their evenings. And that's where he would spend most of his evenings. In fact, after a year of being saved and going to church on Sundays and just trying to appease his conscience and the Holy Spirit's convicting his life, uh, he would just go to church on Sundays, try to get along, uh, all those different things. Uh, He didn't even own a Bible. Once again, he grew up in a Christian home, but after he went out of the world trying to purge his mind of all the things he'd been taught about God, now he's saved, but he's not really living the Christian life. He's a saved man. He's not a Christian. One day, one Sunday, a visiting preacher and teacher of the Bible was in the church that they were at. Now, Robert made no qualms about letting everyone know that the only preacher he liked listening to was his pastor. That was it. He he thought, he he said this about all the other preachers. He said they're a bunch of stuffed shirts. That was his uh, assumption of all the other preachers that he had ever heard. He liked his preacher and that was it. But it was Sunday, and this guy was preaching, and he knew he was supposed to be in church, so he went anyways, even though he knew his pastor wasn't preaching, and he listened. And this man was very eloquent, very well-trained. He knew his Bible very well. In fact, he said he had this huge, sprawling chart just dedicated to the tabernacle, and he said it filled the entire front of the auditorium, and he was astounded by it. He said in that Sunday morning, he listened to him teach and preach out of the Old Testament. He said, and I never heard such vibrancies explained about the beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And all these different things, and he began to have his eyes open to who God was. And it wasn't just some big overlord that uh, stayed up in heaven, but he was truly someone that wrote us a love letter. It was a week-long conference, and for the first time, since Robert went off and did what he wanted to do with his life about six years, uh, about five years from this time, he went to church on a Monday night. He'd been saved, he'd gone to church Sunday, but he would never go to church to hear any of the preacher except for his pastor, and uh, he pretty only went, went on Sunday. But this pastor, this preacher, caught his attention so much that he said, I want to come back on Monday night. And so he did. Raptured with attention, he abandoned the pool hall and went to church on Monday night. And Tuesday night, he did the same thing. He didn't go to the pool hall, and he went back to church again. And he heard something that Tuesday night. The preacher said something, and it sent a bolt of electricity through his body, and he was astounded by what he said. He thought it was heretical. He thought it was blasphemous. He looked to his pastor. He looked to his father. He looked at some of the deacons, and none of them winced. None of them batted an eye. So he said, okay, you know, I'll just stick to it. And he stayed there. And once again, that next Wednesday night, that next night, he went back to church again, astounding himself that he is going to church as opposed to going to the pool hall, even though he's a saved man. He's astounding himself by how he's being drawn to listen to this man. And that same, and that Wednesday night, he said something very similar to what he said the night previous. And he was just overwhelmed with, with anger. 
because he said, I can't believe the pastor's not saying anything. My dad, my dad's a deacon, not saying anything. The other deacons aren't saying anything. They're just letting this guy say heretical, uh, blasphemous things from the pulpit. They're not doing anything. And so in his ignorance, he stood up middle of the church service and says, I do not agree with what you're saying. Of course, all the, uh, the pastor, the deacon, his father all looked down and flushed with embarrassment that in the middle of the church service, he would stand up and say such a thing. Now, the man preaching was a very patient man, and he said, what, what do you not understand? You see, the statement the preacher made was, God loves us as much as he loves Jesus Christ. He said it two times, Tuesday night and Wednesday night. And both times he heard it, he thought that's blasphemous. That's, that's heresy. And they began to have a conversation back and forth during the church service. Everyone's sitting there stunned. You know, I would be if someone said something, you'd be like, okay, no one knows what to do. As this young upstart, 21-year-old know-it-all is trying to refute the preacher in the middle of the church service. And he very calmly and patiently started having a conversation with him, asking him questions. And he asked him this question. He said, well, if it were true, wouldn't that be nice? That's what the preacher asked Robert Ketchum. He said, if it were true that God loves you and God loves me just as much as he loves his son, Jesus Christ, wouldn't that be nice? And of course, he had to admit yes. And so he asked him, well, go ahead and open your Bible to John 17, verse 23. And he had to admit he didn't even have a Bible. Once again, young upstart know-it-all, doesn't even have a Bible, isn't living right, but he thinks he knows how to refute the man of God. The preacher came down, walked down to him, gave him his Bible, and said, okay, here, I'll give you my Bible. Go and open up John 17, 23. And started in Revelation, started working backwards, as the pastor said this morning. You don't know, you start at the back, start going through. And so he found John, and he told the preacher, he says, there aren't 17 chapters in here. There's like barely any chapters. Everyone began to laugh because uh, he was in, you know, 1 John, not the Gospel of John. They all knew what was going on, but once again, Robert had no idea. He was so ignorant because he had gone so far out into the world and cared so little, even as a saved man. He wasn't living the way he was supposed to. He wasn't living the way God wanted him to. And in front of everyone, he's showing his ignorance. Eventually, he found the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 23. And the preacher had him read this, the verse. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me.
Robert says he began to become weak in the knees and fall back into his chair and he buried his hands in his face. He began to weep aloud and pray and show his utter disbelief that God could have such a love for him. You see, because the love of God truly is an unbearable weight, especially if you're not living the way God wants you to. Because even when Robert would go to the pool halls and smoke his cigarettes and live the life he wanted to live, God still looked at him and says, I love you as much as I love my son. And Robert became overwhelmed with the love of God. And everyone in that church house began to cry because they truly began to understand what the preacher was trying to say when he said, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Robert went home that evening, and for the next two or three days, he was suffocating under the weight of the love of God because he knew he would never, ever even dream of holding a candle to the love of God. And he knew God wanted him, and he knew God had a desire for him, but he was suffocating under the weight of the love of God. He could not understand, he could not comprehend why God would love him. I grew up in a Christian home. I I was trained the way I was supposed to, and I went out and I ruined it all, and I'm a failure. I've been going to church, and I'm not even acting like I'm going to church, and yet God still loves me. And he began to crack under the weight of God's love. You see, Robert knew at that point that God wanted something from him. God wanted Robert's life. And three days later, he rolled out of his bed onto his hardwood floor and fell to his knees, and he prayed a very short prayer. He says, Lord, I have nothing to give you but one thing, and I'll give it to you. You see, there's a lot of people that want to give their life to God, but I wonder how many people want to give their obedience to God. Because we're all about the titles, and we're all about uh, the flash, and oh, look at this, look what I did, and, and look at this, which is good. You should give your life to God. But more important than just giving your life to God, what about your obedience? Because Robert understood after living his life the way he wanted to, after making a wreck of his life, after being a failure, he understood there is nothing I have. My life is worthless. My life is garbage. It's a trash heap. It's a vile scum. That's who I am. But the one thing I can give you is my obedience. And that's what he said. But that was his prayer. He says, I can't give you anything, but I can give you my obedience, and I'll give you all of it. He's 21 years old, been saved for just about a year, and at that point, his life changed. 
when he truly got serious about his salvation and he truly got serious about the love of God in his life, his life changed. No longer did he go to the pool halls. No longer did he smoke his cigarettes. No longer did he live like the prodigal son. He now lived like the way he believed God wanted him to live because he decided God is going to have my obedience. My life may be worthless, but he'll have my obedience. Robert knew the Lord wanted him to preach. So he went and told his pastor, and his pastor said, okay, the Lord called you to preach, then you're going to preach. Told him to get a sermon ready. Within two years of that, 23 years old, Robert was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Not even 10 years from him running away from God. Not even... Three years, not even, well, just about three full years from when he got saved. He was now the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Robert Ketchum lived his life with the one desire and goal that God will always have my obedience. My life may be a stinking vile wreck, but he'll have my obedience. It may not be worth much. My lack of education, because remember, he dropped out of high school. You'll have it all. No matter what, you'll have my obedience. Robert Ketchum gave the Lord his obedience. Every step of his life was out of the obedience to the Lord. He was one of the leaders of fundamentalism. The church he was in and the group he was in, they were, part of, uh, they were part of a group called the North American Baptist Association, Convention, Northern Baptist Convention. He decided he was going to stand for what was right. He decided he was going to obey the Lord, which eventually got him kicked out of the convention, which broke his heart. Friends that he had for many years turned back on him. Because there are things that he was not going to bend on. He hated and despised the liberal and modernist movements of his day that was infiltrating the conventions. He went, he joined the Baptist Bible Union. When that fell apart, he became, he became part of the General, uh, uh, the General Association of Regular Baptists. He was actually the president of it for many years. And during his time, he always made sure to understand we're keeping liberalism and modernism out of our churches. He was a leader of the fundamentalist movement. He was attacked by many, belittled, but one thing he always did was he stood true for his Lord. This is what God wants me to do and I will do it. Something else you should know about Robert Ketchum is when he was about 21, 20 years old, somewhere around there, he started to lose his eyesight. By the time he was a pastor, 23 years old, for him to read a book, he either needed a very strong magnifying glass or he needed to hold the book he was reading about an inch from his nose. That's how bad his eyesight had become. He was practically blind the age of 23. His entire ministry 
he was practically blind. But he did not allow his past, his wicked behavior, his lack of education, or his incredibly poor eyesight to be an excuse or a reason to deter his life's work, his dedication to the Lord. His whole life was driven by the love of God. The love of God that is as strong as his love for his own son. That's who Robert Ketchum learned who the father was. He learned that God loves me. And I cannot understand it. But I know what Jesus said. I know the Bible is true. It doesn't make sense. It'll never make sense. And it never should make sense that God loves me just as much as he loves his own son. But it's true. Robert Ketchum was a man that desired to give the Lord every bit of obedience he could. Because he knew his life was worthless. He was a wicked, uneducated, blind man. And God wanted me. God loves me. Yeah, I'll give him whatever he wants. My obedience, that's all I've got. I don't have eyesight. I don't have education. I'm a wicked person. I didn't live a good life. But I can give you my obedience. You see, every person that has been saved as the call of obedience in their life. Jesus Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And first John says, by this we know that we love the children of God and when we love God and keep his commandments. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God says your obedience is par for the course. Every person that is saved, you have a call on your life to obey the Lord. And it should not even be a question because remember, he says, I love you. And when he says he loved me, I can't really even comprehend what that means. Once again, if you are not living right, the love of God should crush you. It should suffocate you because you're a wicked, slimy, vile wreck. And God says, I love you as much as I love Jesus Christ. Even though you're a wreck, even though you don't like me, I love you. There is no other way around it. My reasonable service is obedience to God. Reasonable. Not, 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 the, not the badge of honor. Not above and beyond the call of duty. That's reasonable service. The call of obedience. Where are you in the call of obedience? If you're unsaved, then you need to start with salvation. The first call of God is a call to himself. If you're not saved, there isn't a call of obedience on your life yet. You need to get saved. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So if you're a person that's living the Christian life and you've been going through the motions, but you know in your heart of hearts that if you died today, if the trumpet sounded, you wouldn't be going up with everyone else. You would not stand before Jesus Christ in heaven. You know where you'd end up if today was your last day on earth. Today is the day. Do not put it off. 
It's a lie of the devil that I'll have tomorrow. I'll have tomorrow. It's a play in churches and Baptist churches around the country, around the world, of people playing Christian. Because they, they like how it looks. They, they see the lives of other people and they like how happy they are. But I'm not really going to sell out to it. I'll just kind of float along with it. So if you're not saved, today is the day. But if you are saved, there is the call of obedience in your life. We need to stop the act. The act that I'm okay. I'm all right. We need to grow up and admit I am a filthy pile of garbage. I mean, look at the hymns and the books and the sermons of yesteryear. They understood their present condition. Oh, what a worm that I am. Oh, we wouldn't dream of calling ourselves that today. You a worm? I, I don't know about that. I'm pretty good. I go to church three times a week. A hoity-toity, good for you. No, when, when you are true to the call of obedience, you understand who you are. See, might I remind you, the Apostle Paul, what he had to say about himself. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That was the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you, if the Apostle Paul says, I am the chief among sinners, then who are we? Stop lying to yourself. Stop, stop deceiving yourself. You are not good. You're vile. You're disgusting. You're putrid. That's what we are. You see, we used to understand that, but now we, 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 we've uh, gone in with the American Christianity that, that we're the saviors of the world. We're going to take care of everything. We're, we're all good. No, no, I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is the good one. That I'm just a vile mess. That I'm just a putrefaction. I'm a rotten pile of garbage along the side of the street. That's who I am. Stop the act. It's, uh, it's pretty vile. God despises the prideful. Makes him sick. It's disgusting to him. That God created us and we went our own way. Disobeyed him. And out of the love of his heart, he said, I want you back. And he made a plan. And he gave his son. And we have the gall, the audacity to say, I'm good. Do you see how good I clean up? I go to church. I read my Bible. Well, I guess Jesus Christ didn't have to die for you then. See, I believe Paul said of whom I am chief, not because he was some vile, wicked, Corinthian type of Christian that was way out there, wickedness. No, what I believe is Paul was so close to God and so close to Christ that he said, man, in comparison, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I'm wicked, I'm vile. 
my best day, I'm disgusted compared to Christ. I am nothing. I am as the most wicked person in this world when I stand next to my God. The one that says, I love you like you're my own son. Compared to him, on my best day, at my best, I'm the chiefest of sinners. You see, we truly do not believe that we're that bad. We truly do not believe that we are the scum of the earth. We truly don't believe when the hymn says a worm that I am. We don't believe it. We believe we're good. We believe that we've got it all together. You see, we've forgotten that God loves us like Jesus Christ. You see, because if we had that in our mind at all times, I think our mindset of God and our mindset of ourselves would be totally flipped. You see, because if you truly understand, if you truly understand that statement that Jesus Christ said when he says, thou hast loved them as thou lovest me, if you truly understand that, that should, that should be like getting hit with a semi-truck. Whoa. I know God loves me, but he loves me like the perfect one, like the holy one. He loves me like Jesus Christ, the Messiah, his only begotten son. That's how he loves me. You see, because if you don't have a proper understanding of that, you're dead. You're either dead spiritually or you're dead physically. If that doesn't move you. If that doesn't prick your heart and crush you with conviction, then you're dead. You're dead physically or you're dead spiritually or you're acting like it. Just imagine living a life so vile, having the blessing of God to grow up in a Christian home, throwing it away, and God still saying, I love you. Jesus Christ, that's the love I have for you. The next step is the call of obedience. I'm saved. God saved me. You have a call on your life. When we talk about baptism, we call it the first step of obedience. After salvation, your life is the call of obedience. I get baptized. Why? Because it's fun? Because it's cool? No, we get baptized because God said, I want you to get baptized. It's because Jesus Christ gave us the example. This is how you ought to live. The first thing you need to do is get baptized. The first step of obedience in the Christian life is getting baptized. Salvation is the beginning of a life of obedience. Or at least, that's what it's supposed to be. But I have fear that many of us fall way short of such a simple thing as obedience. Children sing about it. Obedience is the very best way to show that I believe. Yet it's such a hard thing for us to comprehend. Every saved individual has to follow the call of obedience. 
not everyone will be called to pastor or be a missionary or preach or to be a full-time servant, but we all have a full-time job. Amen. The full-time job of obedience to Christ, Amen. of obedience to God. Whether or not you'll be a layman, whether or not you'll be a pastor, doesn't matter. God says, I want your obedience. And that's a full-time gig. I don't just clock in on Sunday and clock out on Sunday and clock in on Thursday and clock out and that's it. I am a Christian all the time and my Christianity is obedience to God. Are you surrendered to the call of obedience? See, obedience means I do what is right no matter the situation. No matter the cause, no matter what I think, no matter what I'm faced with, I do what I am told. You see, that was Saul's problem. Saul, the king of Israel, first king of Israel, when he was humble and low in his sight, that's when God says you were good. But when you began to believe your own press and were puffed up and, and believed you're all that, Saul, that's when you fell. First Samuel 13 this is where Samuel told Saul, he says, look, Saul, you're going to be there. I'll be there in a certain amount of time, and then we'll have a sacrifice. And Saul tarried. He obeyed uh, as far as he could see. You see, because Samuel was a few minutes late. And Saul said, all right, I'll take care of it. I've got a job to do. You see, but Saul, that's not your job. God did not tell you Amen. to perform the sacrifice, Saul. God told you to wait for the prophet, for the sacrifice, Saul. But Saul thought, I got it under control. I'll take care of it, God. Don't worry. The king will take care of the deed. You see, Saul was surrounded by his enemies. So he allowed his circumstances to break the call of obedience. You see, obedience is the test. Do you trust me? God will put you in situations and scenarios that humanly will not make sense and they will never make sense. But God wants to know, do you trust me? Like the widow, I'm going to make cake my son, and then we're going to die. Man of God says, make one for me first. Don't think you heard me. I'm going to make one for me and my son, and then we're going to die. I know. Make one for me first. And she listened. And God performed the miracle every day until the famine was subsided. Why? That's scientifically impossible. If you don't know it, flour and oil does not just foof, puff out of things. But God says, I want your obedience. Even if it's insane, according to mankind, I want your obedience. The widow with the two minds, I want your obedience. It may not make sense, but I'll give everything I've got. Where are you at? How do you stack up to the call of obedience? Where 
on the scale of obedience do you land? Oh, I'll go this far in obedience to God. But that, ooh, that's too far. God, sorry, you're asking too much now. Wow. I didn't know you could put a price tag on God. Where are you on the scale of obedience? How far does your obedience go? Robert Ketchum first took the pastorate at the First Baptist Church in Quebec, Pennsylvania. One of his first days in his study as the pastor, he was reading at the book of Colossians. He came across verse number 18. Let's go there. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 18. He was reading, studying, Colossians, studying at the book of Colossians, and he stopped, dead in his track, mind everything. The whole world stopped when he read verse number 18. See, this verse was the next step in his calling and his dedication to obedience. Full and complete, without doubt or question. Colossians 1.18 he read this, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Reading those words, stopped him dead in his tracks. He immediately thought, there it is, this is it, this is what I've been looking for. This is it. This is my life. This verse right here. I have my standard. Every time I have a question, I go where Jesus stands and I stay there. Amen. That's what this verse says. That in all things, in all things, he might have the preeminence. He immediately went to the flyleaf of his Bible and opened up, took a pencil, and underneath his name he wrote in Colossians 1.18. Closed his Bible, slid it off to the side and said, man, that was good. But instantaneously, a thought came in. Do you really think it's going to be that easy? And he stopped again. And he began to face of that decision he just made. Panic began to set in. What have I signed up for? He actually had this thought of, what is this going to get me into? What is this going to cost me? Think, think about the man that wrote this. The Apostle Paul wrote this. For 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through all the things that happened to him. It's a list. Shipwrecked multiple times, beaten, flogged, stoned. All of these things. And the Apostle Paul says, in all things. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, anything. As long as my body is used to magnify Jesus Christ, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. 
So understand what this means. This isn't some poet that's just writing and trying to sound parenthetical. This is the man of God who has gone on his journey. He is at the end of his road, and he is saying, that in all things. And he knows what all things mean. He knows what that bears. And he says that in all things, he might have the preeminence. The battle raged inside of Robert's mind. He immediately grabbed for his eraser and was about to erase it because he says, I don't know if I can make that dedication. For, almost, for over an hour, he would go back and forth. Of, it's going to stay, and I'm going to erase it. It's going to stay, and I'm going to erase it. Until he had the realization that I made a dedication to obey the Lord. And at the beginning of this whole ordeal, just an hour beforehand, I promised God preeminence. And every moment since then, I've been challenging his preeminence. The very second I decided he's going to be the preeminent one, every moment since then I've been arguing with God about the preeminence. And he went and he grabbed his pen and he traced over the letters Colossians 1.18. And at the bottom of the page, he wrote, Now, Lord, hold me to it. Signed, Robert Thomas Ketchum. You see, he made his decision. No matter what it's going to cost me, every step is about Jesus Christ. You see, that's the next step in obedience. Obedience is just doing what I'm told and what I'm supposed to do. Preeminence is saying more than that. More than just doing what you tell me to do. I want to do what you want me to do. Even the nuances. There is nothing too small. You desire it. The old saying, your wish is my command. That's what preeminence is. Father, if you even just want it, I'll do it. That's what preeminence is. Superiority in all things. In all things. And he decided that day that, God, you will be the preeminent one in my life. There will not be a day that goes by that you will not have preeminence in my heart. That you will not sit on the throne of my mind and my heart. You have it all. That in all things, he might have the preeminent. Christian. If you have followed the call of obedience, then you're serving God. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe it's time that you take the next step. You see, the call of obedience you'll find is really just the steps to the preeminence of Christ. It's the baby steps that God leads us on to say, are you ready for the next one? Are you ready for the next one? God already knows what he wants to do with you. All the way at the beginning, when Robert Ketchum was on his knees at 3 o'clock in the morning saying, God, I don't have anything to give. 
but I'll give you my obedience. God already saw all the things he was going to use Robert Thomas Kessler for. All the people, his lives, that he would use, that God would use Robert Kessler for. And he had to follow along with the obedience to get to the place of saying, you're preeminent. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, it's all yours. Are you willing to make the sacrifice? Every decision, everything, decision I face, I find where Christ is and I stand with him. That's my life now. And that's the life he lived. He was kicked out of his own convention, lost friends, attacked, had pamphlets and, and booklets written against him because he said, I'm going to stand with Jesus Christ. This is all the way at the beginning. His first pastor, the first Baptist church in Gillette, Pennsylvania. One of his first days in his study, he made the dedication that in all things, he might have the preeminence. Are you ready to go further in everything that you do? In all things, will Christ be supreme? Will he be the preeminent one? Will you go beyond just obedience and make him preeminent? Christ shall be preeminent in all things. The Apostle Paul knew what he was saying. All things, all things, all things, you'll be preeminent. No doubt, no question, you have my Face the man in the mirror. Be honest. Be honest. I'm not good. I'm definitely not great. On my best day, I'm a vile, putrid mess. That's who I am. When I think I'm doing the best, when I think I'm living my best Christian victorious life, Savior, compared to the love of God, I am garbage. And the least I can do is give him the preeminence of my life. So the real question is, where do you draw the line? Where have you drawn the line? Where have you told God, this is it. I go no further. I have gone as far as I'm going to go. You see, here's the deal. Obedience is not doing what you think is right. Obedience is doing what the one that commands it says is right. And Robert Ketchum began to understand that obedience is not drawing a line in the sand. Obedience is saying, wherever you want, that's where I'm at. You have the reins. I'm not even touching the steering wheel anymore. 
I don't even care. I'll sit in the back seat. You just take me where we're going. I'll be there. I'm along for the ride. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I am here because you want me to be. At what point do we tell God, that's enough. I have not taken another step. Let's be honest. We all have. Because I don't see the revival fires of the Lord breaking out all over the place. So we have all told God, ah, I'm not going any further. That's a little bit too far. You're asking too much now. That just doesn't make sense. And God's just waiting. I thought my love was going to be enough. But I guess it's not. I guess the love of my son and the love I have for you isn't enough. Because that's what we're telling him. When I say that's too much. You're asking too much. God says, I thought my love was enough. What is God asking you to do? What has God said this is the next step of the call of obedience? Is it working in a ministry? Jesus Christ said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your treasure is more than just your money. The Bible is very specific in the words that it uses. Treasure. Treasure is anything that a man holds valuable. So what you hold valuable is where your heart is going to be. Your time, your family, and your materials. The three most valuable things to a man. Where are they at? Maybe that's why the only time you think about church is five minutes before you're supposed to leave. Because apparently God's love isn't enough. Apparently, he's not grounded. Because if he gets five minutes before I go and two minutes after I get back home, that's the time span you get. Or have you drawn a line with God and said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good here. I'm doing enough right now. I'm going to put God in a box because I don't want to do anymore. I thought my love was enough. How about we stop putting God in a box and just say whatever you want, even if it seems crazy. You've got it. Where do you spend your time? Where's your family at? That's where your heart's going to be. And your money will follow. Where I spend the most time, that's where I'm going to spend the most money. What my family wants, that's where I'm going to spend the most money. So if I spend my most time in the church, and I make sure my family's involved in church and ministries, guess what's going to follow? My money. Guarantee you top givers in any church in the world are going to be the people that are most involved. Because they understand it's not about the money. The money is the afterthought. 
It's about what can I do for my God? Because he loves me like I'm Jesus Christ. And I don't deserve an ounce of his love. Yet I have so much of it, I don't even comprehend it. It, it would crush me if it was a physical representation. I would be gone. I would be smothered. And I don't deserve any of it. But we put a box on God. God is waiting for a man to say, Christ will be preeminent in all things. He's waiting. He is waiting for someone to say in all things, I don't care how crazy it may seem, I will stand with Christ. Not just what I'm comfortable with, in all things, witnessing. How is it that Brother Usher has so many soul winning stories just from psychiatric cancer? And he probably has more than most of us since he's had cancer. Christ is preeminent to him. Because he says, you know what? I may have cancer, but I'll use it. Because God obviously said he wants me to have it. Ooh, what a wretched man I am. That I allow myself to drift. That I allow myself to fall away from such a wondrous love. Why aren't you here on Saturday? Why is it that whenever there's something to plan, it's always prime time soul winning, Saturday afternoon? I thought there was more time in the day on Saturday, but maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe is it we just... better send the one my way. So one during the week, are you crazy? I already do it on Saturday. Last I checked, everyone has a soul. And last I checked, the Bible said, Jesus Christ said, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, why do we not see the movings of God? Why do we not see people get saved? He's not preeminent in my life. I could take it or leave it. And that's being generous. When did he revoke? When did God revoke his promise to take care of those who are doing his work? we're not doing his work. Oh, why am I suffering? Are you doing what God wants you to do? One of the best things I ever heard was if you're right with God, you don't have to wonder if something's happening and if I'm getting judgment for sin. 
just know the Lord's working on me. I don't have to wonder, oh God, did I do something wrong? Because I'm right with God. See, once again, I say, if you're not right with God, the love of God should, oof, it should overwhelm you. You shouldn't sleep. You shouldn't eat. Nothing should go right in your life until you get right. Because it should never sit well with you that a vile, wretched, and still living for yourself, pathetic garbage heap is taking the love of God, the love of Christ, like it's no big deal. See, the problem is we're much more carnal than we realize. We're so inundated with the cares and the affairs of this life, we don't even realize it. I have so much influence from social media and movies and TV shows that I'm thinking like a liberal. I'm not thinking according to the Bible, and I have no clue. It's so far gone. I left God so far ago, and I have no idea. It's like Samson. Shook himself off. Let's do it again. And he whistled. One of the saddest statements in the whole Bible. He whistled not. God wasn't with him. for Christ, I say it again, you're either dead spiritually, you're dead physically, or you're out of the life. Shame. Shame on us. How do you measure up? shall be preeminent. He doesn't know the word no. It's not in his vocabulary. He will never tell God no. You need this, Father? You got it. No questions asked. In fact, God doesn't even have to ask. I'm offering it to him. Father, do you want this? Do do you want that? Do, Do you want this? I'll give it to you. No questions asked. I want to give you whatever you want. See, that's the preeminence of Christ. See, this is the problem the rich young ruler had. The rich young ruler was willing to obey the commands of the Lord. But when it came to preeminence in all things, ooh, that's a little too far. See, I, I fear that's where many Christians are today. You're saved, you're in church, you're involved in ministries. I obey God just like the rich young ruler. Okay, what about this? Ah, yeah. uh, you're asking too much now. 
I've already given you my obedience. I, I obey you in this, and I, and I obey you in that. But God says, but I want this. Where are you at? So once again, the call to obedience is the steps to the preeminence of Christ. If I follow the obedience of the Father, Christ will be the preeminence. If not today, then sometime in the future. That's the, the workings of the Lord. just aren't willing to give up all things. Where do you draw the line? God loves you like he loves Jesus Christ. Despite us all, he loves us. And he loves us Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, you can stand before God as if you were Christ because he stood before God as if he were you. I can go to God because Christ went on my behalf and took God's wrath on him so I can go to the Father. That's the love that's the love that's unspeakable. That's unfathomable. Where are those men that would say, all things, I follow the call of obedience. In all things, he'll be preeminent. Deal Moody said, There's nothing too sane for my God to fully consecrate. Do you follow the call of obedience? Where do you end up? Have you surrendered the call? Is Christ asking for the preeminence of your life? Where have you told God that's enough? I can't go any further. I say it again, you forgot about the love of God. If there's a verse I aspire to live to, it's Colossians 1.18. That in all things, in the flyleaf of my Bible, I have it written down, that in all things, anything actually but I can give you my the preeminence of my life you have it the most supreme position of my life is all yours the most comforting thought that you will ever know if you surrender to the preeminence of Christ you know one thing for sure no matter where you stand, you will never stand alone. Because if you have made Christ the preeminent one, then you're always standing right beside him. 
So no matter where you're at, if Christ is preeminent in your life, he'll never stand alone. He'll always be beside you. Trust me, he does. If he loves you like he loves Jesus Christ, I don't think he could get any better than that. Where does our obedience end? Who sits on the throne of your heart? A quote that encapsulates Colossians 1.18. Oswald Chambers. My God. of I am, the best that I can be, 